Welcome to A History of the Inca. Episode 47, The Making of a Conquistador. Hello everyone and welcome once again to A History of the Inca. I am your host, Nick Mashinsky. A few announcements before we begin. First, I checked in with Daniel O'Shea from Centro Cultural Akamama, and he says that there are still some openings available to participate in the excavation program they have set up. This means that there is still time for you to sign up and participate in an excavation in the Cusco area and to visit other archaeological sites that are off the typical tourist itinerary. Then, after your two-week experience is up, you can hit all the other sites, Sexuaman, Moray, Machu Picchu. But if you want to participate in the excavation and registration of artifacts, you'll have to sign up soon. It is already mid-April 2022, and the first groups will begin their archaeological experience in June. So contact Centro Cultural Akamama at info at akamama.com to sign up and help fill the gaps in Andean history. That again is info at aqamama.com. One more thing, if you are enjoying the show or have enjoyed the show for years now, please rate and review the show. Ratings and reviews help get more eyes on the podcast, and if you like the show, then I'm sure there are many others who would too. Whether it is Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Good Pods, Podcatcher, or whatever, please rate the show and give it a review. It is truly appreciated. Now then, in our previous episode, we saw the tension between Atahualpa and Huascar come to a tipping point. After initially being captured, Atahualpa was able to escape and make it to his father's army in Quito. Marching south from there, Atahualpa's generals defeated whatever Huascar sent their way, winning battle after battle and getting ever closer to the sacred capital of Cuzco. Finally, Huascar had no choice but to lead his army out to meet Chalcochima and Quizquiz. After successfully fending off and even driving back his attackers, Huascar got ahead of himself and rushed into a trap, causing himself to be taken captive and his army to be defeated. Atahualpa was not there for Huascar's capture, though. He was to the north, near Cachamarca, awaiting some strange visitors who had come to his land. And it is because of those very visitors that we will be leaving Atahualpa and the Inca where they are for now. Don't worry, we'll see them again very soon. This is a podcast about the Inca after all. However, to proceed further, we must first go back in time and to a distant land. We must first go back to a place that we today call Spain. Enjoy. Because the divine providence and the fortune of Caesar and the prudence, fortitude, military discipline, labors, perilous navigations, and battles of the Spaniards 
vassals of the most invincible emperor of the Roman Empire, our natural king and lord, will cause joy to the faithful and terror to the infidels. For the glory of God our Lord and for the service of the Catholic Imperial Majesty, it has seemed good to me to write this narrative and to send it to your majesty, that all may have knowledge of what is here related. It will be to the glory of God, because they have conquered and brought to our holy Catholic faith so vast a number of heathens, aided by his holy guidance. It will be to the honor of our emperor, because by reason of his great power and good fortune, such events happened in his time. It will give joy to the faithful that such battles have been won, such provinces discovered and conquered, such riches brought home for the king and for themselves, and that such terror has been spread among the infidels, such admiration excited in all mankind. Francisco Jerez in his narrative of the conquest of Peru. To understand the events that are to follow, to make sense of it all, if such a thing is possible, we must first go to the Iberian Peninsula. Jutting out from the rest of Europe and essentially cut off from it due to the Pyrenees, the Iberian Peninsula was settled by numerous people over the course of time. Of course, we don't have time to go into all that, so we are going to skip ahead a bit to the eve of our main narrative today. The Moors, who had controlled much of the peninsula for centuries, found themselves pushed to the southern area of Granada. This didn't happen overnight. Oh no, the Christians were not necessarily pushing the Moors out of the area the entire time, and nor were they always assisting one another either. Indeed, the Reconquista, as history knows it today, was a web of diplomacy, war, and backstabbing. All very interesting, but outside of our scope. But know that the battle over Iberia made the Christian kingdoms, in particular Aragon and Castile, battle hard, not to mention greatly increased religious intolerance. And what does religious intolerance bring? The Spanish Inquisition! I bet you didn't expect that. On November 1st, 1478, the Pope issued a bull authorizing the appointment of inquisitors. Their purpose was to punish anyone suspected of heresy, and they were led by Tomas de Torquemada. The Spanish Inquisition was bad for everyone. If you were charged with heresy, you wouldn't know your accuser, and you weren't even really able to defend yourself against the charges brought against you, as no counsel was allowed. You couldn't appeal the charges, and torture was common, as was execution. The worst execution method was auto de fe, or death by burning. During Torquemada's 18 years as Inquisitor General, it is estimated that 10,000 people were executed by auto de fe alone. Human sacrifice in the name of religion. King Ferdinand II of Aragon and Queen Isabella of Castile, who had been married since 1469, 
aimed to finish the Reconquista by forcing the capitulation of the Moors in Granada. As the preliminary forts of Granada fell, Ferdinand marched on Malaga and forced it to fall after a three-month siege. Ferdinand ordered the population into a courtyard and informed them that a third of them would be sent to Africa in exchange for Christian prisoners. Another third would be sold into slavery, and the rest would be sent to other nations as slaves as payment for those nations' assistance. That is, unless they could pay a ransom. People scoured their valuables and revealed valuables that they had stashed away in the hopes of meeting the city's ransom. But the ransom was set impossibly high. Ferdinand didn't believe it could actually be paid. He wanted all of the wealth of the inhabitants drawn out from hiding. The people of Malaga were sent away. Granada, the final city of the Moors, would later fall on January 2nd, 1492. Not even four months later after the fall of Granada, and with the encouragement of Torquemada, an edict was published expelling all Jews from Castile and Aragon. Castile and Aragon, effectively now Spain, were defined by warfare. The wars over the centuries had made the people of Spain into warriors, who were hardened and tactically sound. But it also created a culture where violence was acceptable, and, a re and religious intolerance the norm. Auto de Fe awaited anyone who spoke heresy. The wars against the Moors only fed the Christian zealots and eventually resulted in the expulsion of the Jewish population. This was the world in which conquistadors were born into, including Francisco Pizarro. Francisco Pizarro was born in Trujillo, Spain in 1470. We think. There is a bit of uncertainty regarding the exact date and year, but 1470 is generally agreed upon. His mother was of noble birth while his father was an officer under the Castilian flag. He had four brothers, Fernando, Gonzalo, Juan, and Martin, with Fernando being the only legitimate child. Despite his parents' background, Francisco Pizarro was never educated. He never learned how to read or write, and as a child, he was in charge of herding swine. It is believed that he served his father in the Italian wars, where his father received honors. We don't really know much else about Pizarro's background until he comes to the Americas. We don't know why he left Spain, but like many men who had gone before him and would come after him, it was likely the allure of potential riches and the feeling of national and religious duty. Whatever the specific reason, we first hear of him again when he decides to be part of the Ojeda expedition. Ojeda came to the Americas with Columbus on the latter's second voyage. He assisted in the defense of early Spanish settlements against the native Taino populations and had just been appointed governor of Araba on the Isthmus of Darien, modern-day Panama. Ojeda needed men 
and recruited from Santo Domingo. One such recruit was Francisco Pizarro. And often you will hear me refer to him as just Pizarro, so keep that in mind as we move forward. As a side note to Pizarro's recruitment, one of his family members was nearly recruited as well. A one Hernan Cortez. Yes, that Hernan Cortez. Pizarro and Cortez were distant cousins, and with Santo Domingo a small colony at this point, they likely came across one another. Other than this possibility, we know next to nothing of what their relationship was, and that is because, as I said, Cortez was nearly a recruit for the Ojeda expedition. You see, Cortez was quite the ladies' man, and unfortunately, or given how we know events played out, fortunately, he had syphilis and couldn't go. Ojeda sets off and ends up landing on the north coast of modern-day Colombia. There he founded the colony of San Sebastian. But things did not get off to a good start. Actually, they hardly got off to a start at all. At San Sebastian, there was little to eat, and the native groups occasionally fired poison arrows at them. Ojeda's partner, a man named Enciso, was supposed to come with supplies a few months after Ojeda and his men set off, but there was no sign of him. Desperate for relief, Ojeda leaves San Sebastian and sailed to Hispaniola to get more supplies and men. His journey was apparently as bad as the conditions at the colony, and when he arrived at his destination, he couldn't secure any help. He died penniless from exactly what we don't know. Meanwhile, at San Sebastian, conditions had not improved. Famine took colonists constantly, and the native attackers kept coming. Pizarro was left in charge until Ojeda's return, a return that, unbeknownst to him, was never coming. They waited for 50 days for Ojeda to return or for Enciso's ship to finally appear over the horizon. They never did. And so what was left of the colonists sailed away from San Sebastian six months after its founding. Pizarro and the rest of the colonists made it to Cartagena. And who did they find there? Enciso. Enciso had arms, powder, and 150 men ready to bring to the colony and was utterly confused as to why the colonists he was supposed to be sailing towards were now all in Cartagena. Enciso accused the former colonists of San Sebastian of abandoning their duty and nearly had them arrested. However, the condition of Pizarro and the rest convinced Enciso, who was a lawyer, that their story about San Sebastian was indeed true. Now I must pause here to introduce a man who was one of the 150 men with Enciso. Vascar Nunez de Balboa. Balboa was a skilled fencer, but was deeply in debt. He stowed away on Enciso's ship as it left Hispaniola and only revealed himself after the ship was well away from port. Enciso threatened to put Balboa on a desert island, given the latter had broken several laws, but for some reason decided not to and Balboa was actually allowed to join the expedition. 
and Cizo would come to regret his decision of ever allowing Balboa to stay aboard that ship. Back to the present story. Enciso insisted that they have to go back to San Sebastian. In his eyes, they all had a contract to uphold. So, back on the boat, everyone. We're heading to San Sebastian. This time, things began to fall apart even before they stepped ashore. The ship struck a rock, and the colonists lost a number of provisions. The fortifications that had been erected were all torn down, making them an easy target for the local population to fire those poison arrows at. Little had changed at San Sebastian. If anything, they were worse. While at their lowest, Balboa spoke of a spot he had learned about where the native population did not have poison arrows and the conditions were better. Enciso took Balboa and a hundred men to scout this area. They crossed one of the local groups and captured their village, which had some gold within it. Here they named their colony Santa Maria de la Antigua del Darien, or as I'll be calling it for the remainder of this episode, Darien. Now that Balboa had essentially saved the colonists, the colonists elected Balboa as their leader. And Cizo's goods were seized, and the lawyer found himself thrown in prison. Balboa soon released Enciso, with the understanding that the former leader would board a ship and sail for Hispaniola or Castile, which Enciso, realizing that it was either leave or be killed, agreed to leave. Here Pizarro no doubt learned a valuable lesson. When it comes to being a conquistador, you must always be ready with a knife in your hand, or you'll find one in your back. Balboa didn't hesitate to go out on expeditions with his men in search of more gold. This, of course, led to conflicts with native groups. During a skirmish with one group, the Spanish captured a cacique named Careta. Balboa, who by now you must all know was a very smooth talker, turned Careta into an ally. The cacique gave Balboa permission to marry his daughter, and the conquistador assisted the cacique in fighting his enemies. This method of dividing and conquering a population is nothing necessarily new or groundbreaking, but it does take a certain kind of skill to pull off properly. Balboa was quite good at it. Pizarro would turn out to be better. Another cacique named Comagre is soon allied through a family member of Carretas. Comagre invited the Spanish into his village and presented them with 4,000 pesos of gold as well as slaves. The locals looked on as the Spanish oozed over the gold until Comagre's oldest son rose up to speak. What is this, Christians? Is it for such a little thing that you quarrel? If you have such a love of gold that to obtain it you disquiet and harass the peaceful nations of these lands and suffering such labors banish yourselves from your own lands, I will show you a country where you may fulfill your desires. But it is necessary for this you should be in more number than you are now, for you would have to fight your way with great kings who abounds with this gold 
and whose country is distant from our country, six suns. The man then continued on, waving south towards the land of great riches that he spoke of. A land across the sea and over mountains, where the very vessels people drank out of were of solid gold. His words were conveyed through an interpreter, of course, but the Spaniards were most interested in the man's tale nonetheless, Pizarro included. It was their first time of hearing of Peru. But at that moment there were more pressing issues. Things were not going well at Darien. Provisions were running low. A storm had completely wiped out the crops that had been planted. It seemed like famine was once again knocking at the door. Perhaps worst of all was that several local caciques were conspiring against the Spanish. It was turning into San Sebastian all over again. However, much to the Spaniards' benefit, Balboa was alerted to the plan of the caciques. Who spilled the beans is unknown to us, but when they were all in one place together, the Spanish surrounded them, captured them, and ended any attempt of an attack happening. With his popularity at the colony at an all-time high, Balboa ordered a message to be sent to the Spanish court. He wanted to alert the king to the success of the colony thus far, as well as the story of Comagre's son, of a kingdom full of gold. The worst part about being the leader of the colony, though, is that his men did not permit him to leave. It seems like Balboa was deemed too important to the colony to simply allow him to depart. So, in October 1512, a ship was sent with messengers to Spain. They didn't arrive to the Spanish court until May 1513, and who was at the court when the messengers arrived? Enciso. Enciso complained to King Philip of Castile about Balboa, and his words seemed to have an impact. The king ordered that Balboa was to be proceeded against criminally. Meanwhile, Balboa's mind had returned to finding the land Comagre's son had mentioned. More men and provisions arrived from Santo Domingo, along with a new title of Captain General from the treasurer of that colony. However, some other news also came along. His standing at the court was about as low as one could get. With all this before him, Balboa decided to set out in September 1513 to find the sea that had been mentioned in the tale. Moving through the lands of his father-in-law and using local guides, Balboa and his men moved south. Eventually, they moved through unfriendly territory and fought the local group, beating them back to a retreat. Upon climbing the Sierras, one of the guides informed Balboa that just a little further up, they would be able to view the sea that they had been looking for. Balboa bid his men to sit and rest while he went further ahead to ascend to the vista. Balboa bid his men to sit and rest. He instead went further ahead and ascended to the vista. It was the first time that we know of that a European had laid eyes on what we know today as the Pacific Ocean. 
Despite seeing what they called the South Sea, it still took them six days to finally reach its shores. Wading into the water on September 25, 1513, Balboa raised his sword and claimed the sea for his king and country. Some 80 men witnessed this event from the beach. Pizarro was one of them. On the way back to Darien, Balboa fell ill. Fortunately, he is treated by a friendly native group, Comagres. Only now Comagres' son was Cacique. He saw that the Spanish were well taken care of and a litter constructed for Balboa to journey back on. On January 29, 1514, Balboa and his men made it back to Darien. He immediately sent a ship back to Spain to alert the court of the expedition and the quote-unquote discovery of the South Sea. Gold was also sent with the messengers. Unfortunately for Balboa, news traveled quite slow in those days, and his standing in the Spanish court was quite tarnished. Even prior to Balboa's expedition to the Pacific, the court had awarded the title of governor to someone new, Pedrarias de Avila. Pedrarias did not sail alone, Enciso was along with him, along with 1,500 men. It was unclear how Balboa would react to Pedrarias' appointment. Would there be a fight between the two sides for control of the colony? Turns out, no. With the forces arriving from Spain, Balboa was greatly outnumbered. So he and his 450 men warmly greeted Pedrarias as the new governor landed on June 30, 1514. Balboa had to give an account of his expeditions, pay a fine, and even had his residencia confiscated. All retribution for what Balboa had done to Enciso. However, due to his services to the crown, Balboa was able to avoid being outright arrested. Life under Padrarias at Darien did not improve for the colonists. Many of the new recruits who had come over with him were not prepared for living in such conditions. At the beginning of his time as governor, Darien had a population of around 2,000 men. In a month, 700 had died. Despite death hovering over the colony, expeditions were still sent from Darien. One expedition of note was to the Gulf of San Miguel. The party was headed by Gaspar de Morales, with Pizarro as second in command. The expedition is famous not for any great discovery, but rather for the cruelty exacted upon the native population. Morales is said to have fed caciques to his dogs. When retreating from native attacks, he ordered captives stabbed and left along the path so that those who pursued them were slowed down as they stopped and assisted the wounded. Given that Pizarro was second in command of the expedition to the Gulf of San Miguel, we can only assume that he had a hand in some of these heinous acts that were committed. Needless to say, these crimes were unnecessary, inhumane, and disgusting. If he were alive today, Balboa would agree with you. 
To his credit, Balboa decried how his contemporaries acted and even wrote a letter to the Spanish court pointing out that such things weren't even done to the Moors during the Reconquista. We must remember that Balboa took a local woman as his wife, and from what we can glean, their relationship was sincere. Though Balboa may have treated native groups as human beings, that doesn't mean he treated them fairly. He was, after all, a conquistador. However, for a conquistador, Balboa soon found himself being left out of expeditions. Very much feeling left out, he set his sights on setting up his own colony on the coast of the Southern Sea. So Balboa sent out a request for some troops to some contacts in Cuba and waited. Of course, as soon as he did this, Balboa was tapped for an expedition, but it is hardly worth mentioning other than that it failed in its objective. When he returned, though, there was good news. For finding the South Sea, the Spanish court bestowed upon him the charter to found the colony of Coiva, an island where pearls were said to be found. Also, a new title was given to him, Adelantado, advanced. At the same time, the troops he had requested from Cuba arrived. It isn't clear how Pedrarias discovered Balboa's plan to settle a new colony, but he was furious when he had, especially when the troops from Cuba arrived. However, the court really wanted to see Balboa and Pedrarias work things out. And so, the Bishop of Darien proposed that Balboa marry Pedraria's daughter back in Spain. As far as we know, Balboa was still married to the daughter of Careta, the local cacique, but this arrangement with Pedrarias was largely symbolic. Espousals were in fact made, but Balboa was not going to go back to Spain to actually marry the daughter of Pedrarias. It was a chance to put differences aside, but it wouldn't last. Padraria sent Balboa to Acla, a colony on the Atlantic shore. Here, Balboa had shipbuilding materials gathered and brought in. He then had native laborers haul them overland to the coast of the South Sea to construct the ships. Over the course of the shipbuilding process, a soldier who had a vendetta against Balboa claims to have overheard him discussing Pedrarias' downfall. Moreover, word of a letter Balboa had sent to the court regarding how poorly the colony was being run under the guidance of Pedrarias was brought to light. When he discovered these two things, Pedrarias could hardly contain his rage. The governor resolves to have Balboa arrested and lures Balboa back to Darien with a message saying that he and Balboa must have a meeting about business. While en route, Balboa and his men were greeted with a column of soldiers, headed by Pizarro. Presumably, both groups were armed, but Balboa did not resist. Instead, he allowed himself to be arrested. Why he didn't resist or put up a fight is unclear, 
It could have been that he was outnumbered and or outgunned. Perhaps, since Balboa had escaped punishment and the worst reprisals for years now, he thought his luck would continue. Pedrarius accused Balboa of treason for the letter he sent to the court and for the other crimes he had committed going back to Enciso. Balboa insisted that he was innocent. The licentante Espinoza actually ruled him guilty and worthy of the death penalty. However, he then stated that due to his imminent services to the state, that Balboa's life should be spared. But Pedrarius wasn't having it. He overruled Espinoza and ordered Balboa to be executed. And so, despite his protests and previous services, Vasco Nunez de Balboa was thus beheaded in November 1517. The ships that Balboa ordered built on the coast of the South Sea were put to use. They sailed west, then north along the coast, searching for the Spice Islands. Meanwhile, Pizarro soon entered retirement. He went into partnership with Diego de Almagro, a soldier who was employed under Pedrarias, and together they started a cattle farm. Now one can only imagine Pizarro's pleasure in seeing expedition after expedition head north and not south, towards the lands that he had heard contained vessels of gold. Finally, though, an expedition did venture south. Pascual de Andagoya attempted the trip in 1522, but faced a current and wind so terrible that despite hugging the coastline, he had to turn around. He later told his friend Pizarro about his adventure, and I can only imagine the latter listening oh so intensely. Not long after Andagoya's voyage, there came the big news. Hernan Cortez, Pizarro's relative, had made Moctezuma, ruler of the Aztec Empire, his prisoner, bringing one of the largest and most powerful civilizations in the Americas to its knees. What Pizarro does next will have to wait until next time, and Pizarro will be featured more prominently now in our narrative. While conducting my research, I found that the information in this episode was crucial to understand what influenced Pizarro and his later actions. Gold, power, and religion were all drivers for the conquistadors, and I feel that we often forget what a factor religion is in the motivation of the conquistadors. That opening quote for the narrative today, quite a few religious references in there, very few about gold. And the author, Francisco Jerez, well, he was Pizarro's secretary, joining right before Pizarro made inroads into Peru. Peru. 